Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy, for your word. Lord, just all the ways you show yourself strong on those whose, on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to you, as you told King Asa. Lord, we, we want to we want to hear from you today. So we ask that you would uh, speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would go deep into our heart, that it would bear fruit, fruit that would remain, fruit that would glorify you. So please have your way with us, Lord, and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chap- <coughs> chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting chapter. So we'll read it. Well, stuff just comes to me and I just blurt it out. That's all I'm saying. Daniel is in Babylon. Babylon has conquered Judah and pretty much destroyed Jerusalem. They did it, all right, you ready? Since I've already blurted out some sheer wisdom, let's do it again. You guys can give it back, right? Babylon has thumped Judah, A, because Babylon is so awesome, or B, because Judah had been in such rebellion to God that God had to deal with Judah accordingly by bringing in Babylon to thump Judah? A or B? B. See, you're as smart as I am. Maybe smarter. So Daniel's there. He's now in the court of the king. He's been elevated, um, along with his buddy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we read about last week. And now, historians would say he's probably about 50 years old, and so we don't have the exact chronology, but uh, probably if you were here last week, we read about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, um, kind of a familiar story. And probably about 30 years has elapsed between chapter 3 and chapter 4, just so you can kind of put it together. Notice that in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, you may recall, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had a dream. Daniel told him what the dream was, and interpreted the dream. And he said, wow, that's awesome. Your God is amazing. So he acknowledged God once. And then at the end of chapter 3, he noticed that God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And he said for the second time, wow, your God is amazing. And so he's acknowledged God twice, but we agreed last week, if you were here, that at the end of chapter 3, He probably didn't fully surrender his life to the Lord because he said, hey, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be burned and made an ash heap because there's no other God who can deliver like this. So we kind of agreed that he didn't quite capture the heart of God by the end of chapter 3. Fair enough? 
today we see, I believe, his transformation, which is a beautiful thing. Because Nebuchadnezzar, prior to this autobiography, is a very, very evil man. Very evil man. And so um, this is literally uh, sort of his chapter, his autobiography. It's kind of interesting if you think about it. I mean, we have lots of writers in the, in the Bible, right? Like Moses wrote the first part of the Bible. Samuel wrote some, right? Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah wrote some. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote some. Paul wrote quite a bit, right? Peter wrote some. Apostle John wrote some, right? And here we have Nebuchadnezzar gets a chapter, right? If you were God, would you let Nebuchadnezzar write a chapter in your book? God did, right? God did. And so this is really his autobiography. And uh, it's a great picture. Uh, he's going to give us sort of a, a review of a period of his life. And uh, I think there's some great lessons to learn from it. So chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. So let's just set the stage here a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar is going is to tell us what has happened to him. He's going to describe how it played out in past tense. And like any good movie, he's at the beginning, he's given us the introduction, he's laying it out, and at the end, he's going to give us the conclusion. Does that make sense? And so he says, hey, I thought it'd be good to tell you what happened to me, right? I mean, we all tell a good story, right? Hey, this is what happened to me, and this is what I learned as a result of it. So he's just kind of laying, laying it out. Now, let me just say this. He has a testimony that he's about to share, Right? We all, if we've been touched by the Lord, we have a testimony to share. And can I just, I mean, we all kind of maybe assume that, and we're kind of like, duh, yeah. But yours is unique. Can you catch this? Yours is special. Yours is unique. Yours was orchestrated by God before the foundation of time. Is that crazy? That's crazy. And yours is unique and mine is unique. So we all have a story to tell. Now, we all have also a platform to tell that story. Can I say this? This is important. We all have a platform to tell this story. I believe Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he's the king, right? And God has touched him. By the end of this, we're going to say, wow, that's pretty crazy. He's a changed man. And God has touched him. So what happens if you're the king, like you were the most powerful man in the world before God touched you. Now God has touched you, and you're still the most powerful man in the world. What do you do with that? Well, you say, this is what God did to me, right? What does he say? To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. First of all, peace be multiplied to you, right? Like, that's the first clue that this might be a different guy, right? Before he says things like, tell you what, I'm going to give you an unreasonable request, and if you don't meet it, I'm going to chop you in pieces, right? That's got a little bit of a different vibe than peace be multiplied to you, right? 
So now he's saying, peace be multiplied to you. Hey, I thought it'd be a good idea to tell you what God did for me. Right? He's got a message and he's got a platform. In our lives, we have a platform. We all have a message, but we all have a platform. Don't underestimate the, the importance of your platform. Well, I'm not a mega church pastor and I'm not Billy Graham, so, you know, I, my platform is to the people I work with or my neighbors or my kids or my cousin or whatever. Don't underestimate the, the importance of that. It's huge. It's huge. And furthermore, don't try to claw your way onto another platform. This is what happens way too often. This to me is uh, like principle of ministry number 84, right? Don't claw your way onto another platform, right? Man, you know, this platform, you guys are, what does that say? If I say, you know, I heard one guy one time, this has been many years ago, he's, he went to a, I won't even tell you what it is, a small rural church in, uh, near Canaan. And he said, you know, it's a denominational church. He said, we get these pastors that'll come. And I feel like we're like a training ground for a bigger church, right? We get a pastor that comes, we love him, and he teaches us, and then he does such a great job that he realizes he can get a better gig, right? How does that make you guys feel if I tell you that I'm applying for a better gig? What kind of gig does that make you all? A lame gig, <laughs> right? Is that right? I mean, that's how it, that's how it rolls. And, and if I'm like trying to claw my way into a, into a different platform or, or it plays out in lots of different ways. I'm just thinking about it because I was thinking about that guy, right? But it plays out in lots of different contexts, right? Like, Maybe God has put you in such a place, in such a time, for such a time as this, as Queen Esther said, right? Maybe, or as Mordecai told Queen Esther, maybe that's what you're there for. And too often, we spend way too much energy not realizing this person or this group of people or this situation that's right before us because we're trying to find our way to that. We're trying to make another one happen. We'll let God make it happen and then just live it out, right? How many people after Jesus ascended did it take to turn the world upside down? Eleven, right? Eleven. So if God's doing what God is doing, just let God do what God is doing. And I learned a long time ago, you'll save yourself a lot of frustration. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a message and he's got a platform. So he's going to use it. He goes on, he says, how great are his signs? He's still talking present tense now because he's reflecting on what God has done. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So, keep this in mind. We've been reading about Nebuchadnezzar's power since 2 Kings, Chronicles, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. We've been reading about Nebuchadnezzar for a long time. If you've been with us through these Old Testament books, we've been reading about Nebuchadnezzar for a long time. Nebuchadnezzar, in the Old Testament history, is very intimidating. 
He's very powerful, but God was never intimidated by him. Nebuchadnezzar himself, this powerful man, probably, again, arguably the most powerful man in the world at that time, he says about God, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom, as opposed to mine, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion, as opposed to mine, is from generation to generation. And so Nebuchadnezzar's got an interesting perspective now. Now he goes back and he's going to tell us the story. Anybody want to hear the story? All right. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Okay. So he's at rest and flourishing. Is that a good place to be? It's, a, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's the place we're all looking for, right? If we're honest. We're looking for that place where we can rest and flourish, right? And can I tell us this? Life comes in seasons. We ha- I'm, I've been alive long enough to know that I've experienced seasons of life. I've experienced down times. I've experienced times of rest. I've experienced times that I would say are somewhat flourishing, Right? Churches go through those times. Nations go through those times. It's not unusual, right? But just know that if you're ever in a time like that, just kind of have your heads up, have your guard up a little bit. Does that make sense? It could be a dangerous time if you're not careful. So he's at rest and he's flourishing. Now, we won't go back in the interest of time, but in chapter 2 he had a dream. This is now his second dream. In chapter 2, he had a dream, and he said he was troubled. This is a different word that says, this dream uh, made me afraid, or that, that troubled me. The thoughts on my, head and, on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. This word means trembled or terrified. This is a, a much stronger word. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that he's talking about that he had in past tense, and he's kind of freaking out about it. Therefore, so if you freak out about something, what do you do? You've got to act on it, right? You've got to make your, your terrified feeling go away. So therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all those wise men, all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, back up for a second. If you were here two weeks ago, we went through chapter 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's first dream? Who did he ask about that dream? Basically all the wise people, right? How many of them came up with it? First time he asked. How many of the Babylonian soothsayers, astrologers, magicians, etc., 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 came up with it? Nada. Zero. So, what's he going to do? He's now got a second dream that's got him terrified. So, what's he doing? The same thing. Right? Anybody ever made a stupid mistake? Raise your hand. Anybody ever made the same stupid mistake twice? Raise your hand. Keep your hands up. Yep, good. 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 So, we're tracking with him, right? Same stupid mistake twice. So I went to these wise people to see if they could make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers came in. I told them the dream this time. The first time, it's interesting, he did not tell them the dream. This time he told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, I'm not a soothsayer, magician, astrologer, or Chaldean, right? 
But even if I were like reading this dream, and we'll read it here in a second, even if I were reading this dream, I don't think it takes supernatural power to say, at least, at least to say, I mean, you may not say, thus saith the Lord, this is what it means. But I think I would say, huh, that kind of sounds like you. Right? I think there's a good chance that these magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers might have actually known what the dream meant. It doesn't say they didn't know what, they couldn't understand the dream. They said they did not make known to me the interpretation. Now, why might they not want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation is bad of this dream? Because the dream has a bad interpretation regarding Nebuchadnezzar. What happens, do you think, in Babylon in 600, 6th century BC if you give the king bad news? Get chopped in what? Pieces. Yeah, you've been reading, right? And your house is going to become a what? Ash heap, right? We could make a song out of this. But we won't. Okay, so he learned his lesson again. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian name. According to the name of my God, that's a little g, little g God. In him is the spirit of the holy God, capital G. And I told him, I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, keep the chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. I like this. As, as Nebuchadnezzar is telling us this situation in past tense, he's kind of going back and forth a little bit, even acknowledging Daniel's name, right? Daniel's name, we said uh, a few weeks ago, the name means... Um, God is my judge. But the Babylonian name Belteshazzar means Bel's prince. That's what they named him when they brought him in to indoctrinate him. And so he's kind of acknowledging, yeah, we called you Belteshazzar according to the name of the Babylonian God, but really your name is Daniel, and we know that, and that's all okay. He said, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Now, the first dream he had was about a big image. And Daniel told him, well, at least the head of that image is you, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is used to these dreams kind of relating to him personally. So this might be why he's a little bit scared. The tree grew and became strong. Its height, its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And so uh, what you got here is a description of a great tree. Not only is the tree majestic, but a tree blesses others. Notice this. It provides beauty. It provides shade for others. It provides food. It for, provides a dwelling place for birds. And so we're going to see this is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And in all the ways that God has elevated him, we could argue whether or not you want to use the word blessed him, but God has at least made him powerful and rich and all of that. And that actually blessed not only him, but was used by God to bless others. 
right? So that's the picture. It provides food. It provides dwelling. It provides shade. It provides beauty. And again, as God works in our lives, there's a good chance as we submit to God. I mean, we can't, it's not, um, you know, if we follow God, then he blesses us the way we want and we're healthy, wealthy, and wise and all that. It doesn't always work that way. But there is a principle that God takes care of his people. Is that fair? And maybe not in the exact way that we expect or the time that we expect or anything like that. But at the end of the day, all in all, God loves to bless his children. And can I just say this? As God blesses his children, that should be an opportunity for us as his children to bless others. So, just like this tree is great and majestic, well, that's awesome for the tree, but it also provides food and shelter and shade and all that kind of stuff. We should kind of see our lives as that way. As God blesses us, let's see that as an opportunity to bless others. So everything's going great on this dream, right? Got this awesome tree, majestic, right? Maybe we might use the word majestic to describe one of you guys, right? Great and awesome, majestic. I like this so far. You guys like this so far? I like it. Well, then I saw in the visions of my head, while on my bed, he keeps going to this. We're trying to do poetry out of this, but I'm not going to make it into poetry. And there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Well, that's not good. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. And so Nebuchadnezzar no doubt at least thinks this might be about him. And this would have felt sort of ominous. Right? The tree is awesome. It's majestic. It's powerful. But this voice says that it's going to be chopped down. He says, nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. This is the voice from heaven. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet, notice this, let it, that's the stump, be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him, now we just got personal, let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. So if Nebuchadnezzar hadn't previously thought this dream might be about him, at least now we know this tree is actually a reference to a male human, it would appear, right? Nebuchadnezzar's a male human. So, Leave the stump in the tender grass of the field. Let that stump be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. That's just downright concerning. You know, I said, I've said for years, whenever we read prophecy, we want to interpret it as literally as possible. I also want to add to that, when we do interpret sort of metaphorically, very often God gives us the key, right? Like, is this tree to represent just a tree? We know it doesn't because he's using the word him now in reference to the tree. So very often, even as we go into uh, reading metaphors into the scripture, uh, you know, the, the Lord will give us some guidance along the way. Verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. So now this is bad. This is just getting real bad. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to basically turn into a, 
have the heart of a beast. He won't become a beast, but he's going to have the heart of a beast. And notice this. I think there's a principle here. When human beings defy the fact that they are created in the image of God, they sort of devolve into animal-like creatures, if I can say that as graciously as I can. See, animals basically look out for number one, live according to their instinctive fleshly needs, right? You know, they might have some, uh, you know, they might have some God, we would, know, we would acknowledge, God-given sort of com- sense of community, right? Like a pack of wolves is more effective at killing stuff than an individual wolf. So they might have even some instinctual um, community that way. But by and large, they don't think about anybody themselves. That's what animals do. Is that fair? Animals were not created in the image of God. Is that fair? Animals are different than humans. Is that fair? We're getting, we're, everybody still with me? Animals are not humans, and humans are not animals. We're all good with that. Our society's not. We're not. This just popped in my head. (laughs) You should hear the commentary on Sunday afternoon at our house, like on what the back row is thinking when, right? But I know exactly what the back row is thinking now, and I'm just going to say it. When the back row was little, we had these stupid, ridiculous Disney sing-along videos. You guys remember those? Come on, raise your hand. If you're, uh, anyway, okay, if you're over 12, okay. And do you remember the, I forget what it was that was bouncing, but something was bouncing along the words, and we could read the words, right? This was educational, right? You know the one I'm thinking about right now? I forget what movie it came out of, but you are a human animal, right? Should have known. That set the stage for the political turmoil we see with Disney today. You are a human animal, and I kind of make light about that, right? But you know, that's a subtle, subtle, stupid little video that's a powerful, powerful statement. You are not a human animal. You are a, you are a human being created in the image of God who was known personally by God Almighty and he knew even at that time that he would come to earth a couple thousand years ago and die on a cross for you individually. He didn't do that for any monkeys. And if we as individuals or as a society I mean, honestly, I kind of stand with Ken Ham on this one. If we 
numb ourselves into accepting evolution. That has just tons of ramifications spiritually for us as individuals and us as a society. And even at that, the church still can't quite decide what they want to do with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Or the latter chapters of Job. Latter chapters of Job describe what looks like a dinosaur. We're not sure what we want to do with that because it just goes counter to what I was subliminally indoctrinated to in grade school. If we consider ourselves human animals, we can wind up doing some pretty bizarre things. And so, let's just take a stand to call the Bible the Bible. And let's take a stand to call the Bible the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And let's just decide, individually and collectively, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And in those areas where, quote-unquote, science, and again, since I've already insulted society, let me just do it one more time, We've learned what that word, how that word science gets used in the last three years. It's anything but. Science is where you have a hypothesis, you conduct an experiment, the experiment needs to re be repeatable, and then you learn. If your hypothesis was correct, you're, you're confirmed in that. If your hypothesis was wrong, if your hypothesis was wrong, you have the integrity to say, I was, everybody say it once, wrong. You have the integrity to say, I was wrong, and you then learn. That's called science. Right? We have not learned from our, I mean, some, from our, socially, from our failed hypotheses in the last three years. So, when science, as it's called, disagrees with the Scripture, can I suggest we stand on the Scripture? Because we've learned what science, how, how reliable science is. It's not. It's not. Now, I know you can monkey with data and all this kind of stuff, but COVID? America has 4% of the, of the COVID. Uh, America has 4% of the world's population. 16% of the COVID deaths. 4% of the world's population, 16% of the COVID deaths. Let's learn from science. And if science disagrees with the scripture, I'm standing on the scripture. Because Matthew chapter 7 tells me that a man who hears these words of mine and does them is like a guy who builds a house on a rock.
So, Nebuchadnezzar is going to become like an animal. And says, let seven times, verse 16. We were way back in verse 16, in case you forgot where we were. Let seven times pass over him. Most commentators say this went on for seven years. That's what the seven times refers to. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. So that's what the watcher, remember probably an angel, um, was saying as a part of this uh, declaration. So the vision has a purpose that's being declared by the, quote, watchers. The purpose is for man to understand and submit to the sovereignty of God. And in our own lives, even as we go through hard times, even if we get chopped down like this tree is going to get chopped down, right? God has things we can learn. It may just be an opportunity for God to demonstrate uh, his goodness in carrying us through hard times. If you're going through a hard time, that does not mean that God's trying to get your attention and you're just hard-headed and won't get the lesson. It may mean that God just needs to, uh, to be glorified by carrying you through the hard times. So hard times are not necessarily somebody's fault, but God takes us through stuff. Sometimes God does take us through stuff to teach us things. But anyway, this decision at least is in order, to know that the li- in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the, whole, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. So then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. And so Daniel here knows what this dream means. And he's at least, remember we said everybody's got a message and everybody's got a platform. Daniel's message is, I know what this dream means. His platform is, the king is asking me what it means. Daniel probably doesn't want to be chopped in pieces anymore than anybody else. But he's got to be faithful to walk through that which he's been called to walk through. So just carrying that further for us, we have a message, we have a platform. Even in that platform, sometimes there, it may feel a little dicey to walk through that situation. But we need to walk through it. We need to be faithful to walk through it. So Daniel, he's, he's gracious. He's saying, I wish this really was related to your enemies, but I know that it's not. And he's, and he's trying to be gracious, but he is, in fact, going to deliver the interpretation. So, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelled, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O king who have grown and become strong for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now, Daniel no doubt knew that because God showed him that, but it probably was what was on the king's mind anyway. He probably thought, yep, that's what I was thinking. 
And as much as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots and the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And so Daniel says, you know what? This is going to happen. According to the sovereignty of God, you're going to be somehow removed from your power, and you're going to be eating grass like oxen, and you're going to be watered with the dew from heaven. Is that crazy? To tell the most powerful man in the world? But it is what it is. And inasmuch as they gave command to the stump, to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdoms shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. So this is God's grace, God's mercy. God's leaving a, uh, the hope for the king that he will be restored. Therefore, verse 27, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So here's an interesting thing between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's sovereignty says through the mouth of Daniel, this is going to happen. Man's responsibility is therefore you need to repent and maybe like somehow it won't be as bad or maybe somehow God will allow the time of your prosperity to lengthen but but every every message from God has with it a therefore right God is going to do this therefore we as human beings have a responsibility to carry out our faithfulness to the Lord in some way, right? God is going to do this. Therefore, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar needs to repent. God's going to get him to repent, but not after a little bit of pain and suffering. You know, Romans 8.29 says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. So God knows what's going to happen, and yet he's going to leave Nebuchadnezzar a free will to repent. But ultimately, God is going to restore Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great picture of God's grace in the midst of God's sovereignty. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so... He had this dream. Daniel gives him a warning. Life's going on pretty well for 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, he's walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling in my mighty power, by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Don't you just love the way that kind of rolls off your tongue? Right? You know, this Babylon is pretty awesome. You know, he's kind of, it's been a year since that, since that dream. Looks like 
maybe I kind of escaped the sovereignty of God. Because it's been a whole year. It's like forever, right? And you know, now that I think about it, I am pretty awesome. You ever had a time in your life, we mentioned earlier, where maybe you're flourishing or you're at rest, right? Let's say you have a time in your life where you're flourishing. Can I tell you a great way to just destroy it? To say verbally or non-verbally, you know, I think I'm flourishing by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. That's why I'm flourishing. Don't do that. Don't do that. And, you know, let's say, for example, you know, I've, you, you know you've heard me talk forever about this, right? It's an awesome church. I love this church, right? You guys are awesome. We might describe this church as flourishing. Is that fair? I wouldn't call it at rest and flourishing because, you know, there's always something going on, right? But you guys are awesome. It's flourishing. I know how I could destroy that. Right? By saying, well, it's, you know. Now, I'm too smart to say that out loud. Right? Well, it's because I'm awesome. Right? I'm too smart to say it out loud. First of all, let me back up. Are you okay if I say I'm too smart to say it out loud? Okay. I need to be too smart. I need to be smart enough to not think it. And that's a private issue between me and the Lord. Right? See, you're all smart enough to not go around and saying, well, you know, this good thing happened to me because I'm so awesome. And I like this part. For the honor of my majesty. Right? You wouldn't say that out loud. But you might think it. Right? I wouldn't say it out loud. But I've got to be careful not to think it. It says here that... He's just walking around the palace. It's not like he's standing on a platform giving some edict or some proclamation. He's probably just talking to himself. He's probably just thinking it. Maybe out loud. Be super, super careful. God gives him a... God, that year that he thought God was like asleep and forgot about his sovereignty, that was actually God giving him a year to repent, probably. Because God's long-suffering. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before what? A destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 13 says, A man's pride shall bring him low. Notice this, if you've, ever, if you've never noticed this before. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verd, verbatim, word for word, twice in the New Testament. Does God waste his breath repeating himself? Never. James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think of it like this. 
God is either pushing us or pulling us. And there's no neutrality. This is what's amazing. He's not neutral. Think of it like a tug-of-war match, right? Let's say, you ever been like, you know, on camping, camping trips or whatever like that? Maybe, you know, church camp when you were younger or whatever like that. And there's tug-of-war, right? Everybody understand what I'm saying? You got a big rope, right? Ditch in the middle. A bunch of people over here, a bunch of people over here, right? And I'm on this side. Brian Muldoon. Stand up, Brian. Which side do I want him on? <laughs> right? If he's going to be on a side, he's either going to be on my side, pulling with me. What's, what am I going to do if he's on my side? I'm going to be drinking coffee, taking it easy while he's at the back of my rope, right? Hurting everybody on the other side, right? Or else he's over here. Have you ever tried to play tug of war with God? Right? If we're honest with ourselves, we probably all tried in some way or another, at some time or another. And we all know that it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is either with us or is resisting us. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar is asking for trouble. So, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. It's the third time we've read this. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. That's a creepy picture, right? But don't be surprised when God does what he says he's going to do. That applies to our times today. And so, that went on for seven years. And at the end of the time... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now, we don't know exactly if, you know, some commentators say Nebuchadnezzar is so stubborn that he waited seven years to uh, lift his eyes to heaven and his understanding returned to him. 
And again, we'll leave room for that. If you're more of a responsibility person, you could say it that way. If you're a sovereignty person, you could say, well, at the end of seven years, it was time for God to raise Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, understanding, and he lift his eyes to heaven, and probably either way is reasonable. Right? What we do know is this. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Is Neb going to walk around on the palace and look at the hanging gardens again and say, wow, this is all for my majesty. You think he's going to do that again? Nope. Not at all. He blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, if you ask Nebuchadnezzar, would he say it was worth it to live for seven years like an ox? Would he say it was worth it? You bet he would. Is it worth it to go through what you go through? That God lets, maybe God takes you through, or maybe God lets you go through? Is that worth it? Is it worth it to live Romans chapter 5? Is this worth it? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into the grace of into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. We love that kind of stuff. Man, we read those verses all the time. Oh, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Sometimes God has to build in our lives perseverance and character and hope. How does he do that? Sometimes by allowing us to go through tribulation. So sometimes we have to eat grass because we need to be humbled. Sometimes God is just building character in our lives. Sometimes it's, it's reasons we don't, we no, we'll never understand. But we do go through hard seasons. And let me just encourage us, if we're in a hard season, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because he who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the day will come, whether on this earth or in heaven, we don't know. But the day will come, if we're faithfully hanging in there, that we can say it was worth it. It may not happen until the next life, but that day will come. And we can count on it because the scripture is more reliable than science. Right? It will come. Verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? See this? At verse 30, 34, Nebuchadnezzar understood who God is. Verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar understands who he is. There is a God and you're not him. Right? I'm not him. There is a God. He's amazing. 
we need to bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. And regarding ourselves, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. So he even got everything back. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And nobody knows that better than Nebuchadnezzar. He's restored, and now he rules the kingdom from a position of humility. And what's interesting is, this is the last, re this is the last reference we have of Nebuchadnezzar, is his autobiography. And it's a great way to sort of close the book on Nebuchadnezzar. But think about this. Remember who he was before? He's the guy that says, hey, if you don't tell me what my dream was, I'm going to chop you in pieces and burn your, make your house into ash heap. You know anybody like that? Do we know people in this world that are so unreasonable and so lost and so depraved that they would think it's okay to chop people in pieces? Yeah, there are people out there like that. Nebuchadnezzar could be restored. Saul of Tarsus. Murdered Christians. Consented to their death. Threw them in prison. Was on a life mission to destroy Christianity. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Is there anybody that's too far out of God's reach? Nobody. Now for those of us who've been reached by God, and God blesses us, it's not for the honor of our majesty, right? It's so that we can remember that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We all have a testimony. We all have a platform. We should use that to glorify God. And give him the glory and live humbly and blessed by him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the lesson, all these lessons that you give us through your scripture, through people who went through hard things. And Lord, you're so gracious. You give us the story so we can learn the lesson without having to go through it. And yet we go through them in our own ways, Lord. We acknowledge that. We have hard seasons, and we have flourishing seasons. And Lord, through it all, help us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to stand on the fact that your word is truth. And help us to stand on the fact that you who began a good work will complete it in each and every one of us until the day of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your goodness. Pray you just have your way with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.